and welcome to the 14th episode of the Tough Take Podcast. I'm Luca DeLosta. And I'm Zach Green. In today's episode, we will be going over the NBA Finals that are happening currently, an interview with Mr. Tony Hoffman, talking about the NHL playoff scenario, and a few other interesting facts and details in the sports world today. Let's get into it. All right, Luca, let's first start off with the NBA Finals. Let's kick it down to the Celtics first. What do you like from them so far? I like the Celtics in Game 1. They played They played well defensively. They scored the ball, obviously, with a win over the Warriors. Game 2, they looked a little shaky. Their starting lineup, Al Horford, Marcus Smart, and Robert Williams only recorded two points each in the entire game. I don't think that's acceptable. But how about on the Warriors? Well, I want to kick it back to the Celtics for a bit. For the eight quarters that have been played in NBA Finals, it looks like the Warriors have controlled most of every quarter besides Game 1 and the 4th. But the Warriors, they've been playing really nicely. I think they've been very physical with the size they're limited to. Draymond played very physical in Game 2, even got a technical. Curry, you know, he's always not going to be the best defender, but they're... Playing Jason Tatum, I'd say, pretty well, at least in game one. And I also like I like Clay Thompson. He is not being the best shooter, and I think he's been 4 of 15 from 3. But he's playing more team ball, and he's not just chucking shots. If you look at the assists and other stuff. And, I mean, the Warriors, it's expected that they dominate almost every quarter. They have probably one of the best offenses in the league. They can shoot the ball from anywhere, and, I mean, they've been playing well defensively, and Draymond did say after game one that he was going to come out, and the Warriors were going to come and play definitely more physical. Well, if let's talk about if they're going to shoot from anywhere. Let's talk about Jordan Poole. Game two, we, we kind of saw him more, and he kind of wheeled off in the last couple series from the first series, but game two, he had 17 points, 42.9% from the field, 55.6% from three, two rebounds and three assists, and he got the crowd fired up at the end of the first half with a 39-foot, basically a half-court buzzer beater, which was nice. And I think Marcus Smart is going to have to play more physical on-ball defense, and Robert Williams is going to have to find a way to dominate on the boards. I mean, Kevon Looney's been playing outstanding the past two series, I'm not going to lie. I've been really liking watching him. But they're, they're going to have to find a way to start dominating in the paint and playing more physical on-ball defense along the arc. And I think in Game 3, I want to see Al Horford get the ball more and shoot more threes. He only had two points in Game 2. So I think Game, game 1 in the fourth quarter, he was on fire. I think they need to get him more rotations. That's what worries me is we saw Jason Tatum not so hot in Game 1. He played amazingly in Game 2. Al Horford played amazingly in Game 1, didn't play so well in Game 2. So it it really, I think, comes down to which team is going to be more consistent. And based on this playoffs, Curry has been very consistent. Kevon Looney has been very consistent. The Warriors as a team have been very consistent. And so I think they might have a slight advantage here. Well, when we bring the series back to Boston, which we are, the Celtics have not lost back-to-back games this postseason. So that could play a role in this, and I think my prediction is Celtics in six. I'm going to 
hop on the Celtics bandwagon as well. But I'm going to say a bold statement. Celtics in five. They sweep in the rest. And now let's shift it and talk with Tony, Tony Hoffman, actually. And we'd like to welcome him here now. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to speak with us and sharing your story and about yourself. Yeah, thanks, fellas. I'm happy to be here. So I guess we'll kick it off. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, that's pretty a pretty open question. Um, currently, I am a national speaker on mental health and addiction. I was a coach in 2016 at the Rio Olympic Games for Brooke Crane, who plays fourth place in the BMX racing finals. I also am the owner of PH Wellness, or one of the owners of PH Wellness, which is a treatment center for alcohol and drug addiction. And what is it really like, you said, being the owner of a center that helps people escape their drug addiction and alcohol addiction? So we just opened up PH Wellness, and I can't give you a full insight into what it's like to own a treatment center that gets to see the miracles of people's lives changing, uh, but I can tell you what it's taken to get here. And uh, for me to be able to be in a position where I could open up my own treatment center, it really has been about years of sacrifice, uh, years of hard work, years of um, just saving and years of trusting that if I continued on the path that I was on um, with my speaking and helping other people, that I would have an opportunity where I could uh, be a part of opening a center that could affect other people's lives. And to be able to see that the, the place open last week um, is an amazing feeling. Uh, it's so cool to be inside a building that you helped create. That we are so that, that was a great accomplishment. We are so proud. Could you explain what it's really like battling uh, the mental health and illness? You know, if I was to explain uh, battling mental health and addiction, I, I think it would be best put that when you're battling it, it's a battle you don't want to be in. The feelings you have, you don't want to have. Uh, the things that you don't want to feel, you want to stop. And the efforts that you make to stop, you can't. And when you can't make it stop, this self-hatred, this discontention, this anxiety and stress, they just get worse. And that's what makes it so dangerous is that when an individual is trying to stop it from happening, uh, oftentimes they can't. And it puts them in a position where they either continue the behaviors that are self-destructive or they make decisions um, that are beyond self-destructive, suicide, uh, hurting other individuals. And really it comes down to just trying to escape. And I know what that feeling is like from my own personal experience. And I'm grateful to have been able to take the steps to get myself in a place where I do not feel like that anymore. And so you just said that you were in a position where you were going through that and you spoke at our school and talked about your life story. And could you kind of boil down how it all really started for you? The beginning of the mental health struggles? Yeah. Yeah, I was, I, I was a young, talented athlete, uh, but also a very young, confused, and felt misunderstood individual. I was dealing with social anxiety, which really was the reason that I isolated away from a lot of people and felt different. 
And I was battling some stuff at home with my father and my mother with their absence. Uh, they were workaholics. They worked a lot. And as a result of that, um, I felt like uh, emotionally I was missing some things. I, I, emotionally, I was not grounded. I didn't know how to uh, identify emotions, process emotions. And so I was this young kid who was going through life who really needed some more support around me. And that support would have helped me feel stable in uh, uncertainty, right? Each of us, all of us, at some point in our lives are gonna feel some type of uncertainty. And the way that we deal with that uncertainty or those emotions that are attached to it really come down to the training that we got early in our lives. Now that doesn't mean that you can't learn those things as an adult because you can, and I'm proof of that. It just means that when you're younger, you're set up with the tools that you have, uh, typically in the home that you were raised. And then it's reinforced in the institutions that were a part of early in our life. And so I was missing some things and it really led me to be um, more confused and more had more anxiety and more stress because I didn't understand why I was experiencing what I was experiencing. But I also believe that my peers didn't have the struggles that I did. And I know you talked about this at our school and the quote, but can you explain what caused you to turn your life around? Sure. I actually had a spiritual awakening and I didn't tell uh, the school this just because schools don't want to hear about spirituality or religion of any type or, or God, Godheads that um, created the world. Right. Uh, I had a friend call me in 2005. Yeah. Yeah. 2005. And it was the fall of 2005, and he said that God had given him a vision, and I was in this vision, and I was going to get three significant chances. If I didn't stop doing what I was doing after these chances took place, he told me that God had showed him in this vision that I was going to go to prison. The following year, I was pulled over three times in four days. The first time I was pulled over, uh, I was taken out of the car because I was on felony probation for armed robbery. They thought that I was making a drug deal. At that time, I wasn't. And I hid a needle between my butt cheeks because I, I knew that if they found this needle, they would violate my probation and arrest me. So when they got me out of the car and they searched me, I had this needle between my butt cheeks. They couldn't uh, find it and didn't find anything on me, but they put me in the back of this cop car. They wanted to arrest me, uh, but they didn't have anything that they could arrest me on. The next night I was pulled over again and I had uh, like 64 Oxycontins. Um, that my friend had purchased and he didn't want to hold on to him. He wanted to hide him under the seat. And I was like, bro, we're, uh, I knew that if I put him under the seat and the cops found him, if they searched the car, cause I was, I was there, which oh, the car would have been open to search and seizure as a search and seizure as a result that he would have said the pills were mine anyway. So I grabbed the pills, put them between my butt cheeks. When the cop came up to the car, I lied and said, I wasn't on parole or probation. Uh, I told him I was, uh, I was, he, I told him when he came back and asked why I didn't tell him I was on probation. I said, I thought you said that, uh, is anybody on parole and I'm not on parole. So he took me in the back of the cop car. It was Thanksgiving night at like 10 30 PM. And he's like, I want to arrest you right now, but I can't unless your probation officer uh, gives me permission. And, uh, she didn't answer the phone. So he let me go. He told me it was your lucky night, Mr. Hoffman. I'm going to let you go. And the next night, nothing happens. The following night, I get pulled over in a car. My girlfriend at the time was driving. The car had fake tags, no registration in five years. It was not insured. She didn't have her license on her. I had drugs on me. She had drugs on her. And I had a, a backpack full of needles that was in the back seat. Uh, the cop never asked if anybody was on parole or probation. And uh, she gave us a fix-it ticket. 
which is in California is a yellow piece of paper that says you have to take care of X, Y, and Z, whatever they put on there in a certain amount of time where you can be in trouble. And when she gave us the fix the ticket, I remember telling my girlfriend at the time, that was the three chances that Adam was talking about. And two months later, I was invited to a church. I was not a church person. I was not a spiritual person. I wanted nothing to do with God, but I was invited by a person who I believed that I could trust. And I went. And when I went up to the altar call at the end of this church service, um, the pastor laid his hands on me and said, God has favored you your whole life and everything that you've done. And I remember I started crying. I was crying. I was crying. I was like, I believe, I believe this is real. This is real. I mean, this guy didn't know me. Like, how would he even know? And that's a blanket, a blank state, a blanket statement that uh, may work for anybody. But I was on the cover of a magazine at 18 years old, was an all-star pitcher, was uh, an incredible travel soccer league player, uh, free throw champion for basketball early in my years, like fourth grade. Like I was clearly had this uh, hand upon me and these things that I was doing in my life. And right after that, he said, uh, you don't have to worry anymore. God's going to remove you from your addiction. That was January 21st, 2007. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this was a miracle. Like I'm going to be fixed. Right. And uh, now shortly after that, I was shooting heroin in a pickup truck with my buddy, Jason. And that night I broke into a house that was up for rent. Uh, you guys heard that when I talked to the school. January 21st, 2007, I had a spiritual experience. That night, I broke into a house that was up for rent. On January 22nd, I woke up at 2 p.m. and there was four cops in the room with their guns drawn. And uh, that ended my run. That ended my trying to kill myself with drugs. That ended trying to run and escape from who I was. And it began my journey of starting things over because in prison, I had nowhere to go. I wasn't allowed to leave my cell. I had to detox drugs while I was in there. And I had to really sit with my emotions. For the first time in my life, I was not allowed to try and escape the way that I felt because I was stuck in a cell for 23 and a half hour days. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I started to learn that I could feel uncomfortable. I started to learn that I could be in a position where I wanted to be somewhere else. And yet I didn't have to be. And I could feel that discomfort and be okay. And so that's what started the journey was I had this spiritual experience that just opened up life to me in a different way and made me realize I don't know everything and that I needed to try something different. And in trying something different, I went after spiritual principles. I went after um, understanding the word of God through the Bible. I don't push my faith on anybody. And I started learning how to apply the principles of what the Bible was saying into my own life. And I started getting different results. And then I started to feel like I was called to do these great things. And I started chasing after that calling, and uh, here we are today. Can you? I know you talked about this at school, but can you talk about the quote that was engraved in your cell and, cut and how that kind of helped you? Yeah. So, and it wasn't engraved; it was written with a pencil. Um, somebody had written a quote that was, uh, if you look it up, it's accredited to like Gandhi and maybe some other folks. But uh, it said, "Be careful what you think. Your thoughts become your words. Be careful what you say, because your words become your actions." Be careful what you do because your actions become your habits. Be careful what you make a habit because your habits become your character and your character becomes your destiny. And it was the blueprint for me. It was literally the, the mechanics of life and the outcomes that we get four feet above my head, three feet above my head. 
And because of my spiritual experience, I was more open-minded. And so when I read that quote, I really started thinking about what it meant and just how much it was in control of the outcomes that I was having in my life. And so then I started going back in my life and I started thinking about the way that this thing was working, my thoughts and trying to work on changing those thoughts and, and, and put them in a place where it could control uh, my positioning in terms of outcomes in a more positive way. And did the way you viewed people and trusted those who you trusted after the fact that you were able to get clean and avoid the addiction again, how did that shape the way you trusted others? You know, I don't, I, I'm not a very trusting person. Um, I don't, I don't give you trust. Uh, you earn trust in my eyes. Um, sometimes that serves me and sometimes that doesn't serve me. Right. Um, it's something I know about myself, um, but I've been through a lot in my past with homelessness and being around individuals that are not just high school kids smoking weed. Um, we're talking about very, very dark scenarios where heroin and methamphetamine and crack cocaine um, are the drugs that are being used in homes or in environments. And there's a lot of taking advantage. There's a lot of um, people who wish ill will on others in those environments. And as a result of some of those experiences, it's made trusting other people very difficult for myself. And so the one thing I knew I needed to do when I was in the situation where I wanted to restart my life in prison was I knew that I was going to have to change the people that I was around. And it didn't necessarily mean that the changing of people that I was going to change was because they were bad people. It was just because the people that I was around did not have the same vision or did not behave in a way that would support my recovery. And so I knew that I needed to build new relationships and that these new relationships had to be built on a compass of ideas or ways that were contrary to my past life. And so really what I was doing was making sure that I picked friends that met the goal or standard of what I believed new individuals, according to my new life, should think like, should be like. And that's not that they needed to be robots, but they needed to adhere to certain types of principles that would confirm to me that these individuals did, in fact, support my new lifestyle were growth minded in the way that I was, but also individuals that I could trust based on the character that I watched um, them and uh, watched how they conduct themselves. Yeah, we really see that. Can you talk a little bit about the BMX side of your story and how that kind of affected you with your injury and Kind of how you sure. Yeah. It. So when I, when I got out of prison, I got into racing BMX professionally. I did it when I was in high school, I was on the cover of the largest BMX racing magazine, uh, which at the time was the BMXer magazine. I was on the cover of that my senior year in high school and drugs uh, took me away from my gifts. And so I, I started to realize that I had this gift in racing and I was going to get back into racing. And so when I got into, got out of prison, I got back into racing and uh, I found some small levels of success. I would know in no way say that I was some big shot, um, but I found myself at the highest level of racing BMX, uh, was uh, awarded the ability to train at the Olympic Training Center and uh, made six finals my first year at the elite level, which is where all of the Olympians and world champions belong at the highest level of racing BMX. In that journey of getting to the top, 
I was injured in 2011, in October of 2011 in Orlando, Florida, by the top American athlete for the 2012 Olympic Games. So I was going good and I was doing very well. Um, but that knee injury is really what caused me to pivot from what I originally thought I was going to do, which was go to the Olympics as an athlete and end up there as a coach. And it was because I got injured. Um, I had to do the knee surgery with no pain medication. Uh, I believed that if I took the pain medication after the knee surgery, that it would uh, cause me to relapse and that my brain would start taking over in the sense that it would make me feel like I had to have these drugs and give me these thoughts and uh, really start to control my behavior again. And so, um, yeah, the knee injury is what ended my racing career and, and made me kind of have to rethink what I was doing and make some pivoting to get to where I'm at now. And then could you continue on to how you coached and eventually got to the Olympics? Yeah. So, you know, I don't know that I ever thought, okay, I'm going to get to the Olympics as a coach. I didn't make it as an athlete. I'm going to get there as a coach. Um, that was never really a thought, but I did think to myself, you know, my mom had a discussion that I needed to start making a living and that if I didn't do that soon, uh, I was going to probably be in a lot of trouble because my parents weren't going to let me stay at the house much longer. And that was a tough conversation and a conversation that I think that every individual in life needs to have, and then needs to have the ability or the belief that they can take that conversation and go do something for themselves in a way that's self-supporting. I just liked helping people. And so I liked the idea of coaching. Um, I was very engaged in the technology side of coaching and athletic performance. Um, I had a coach, Jason Simon, who worked for a company called Carmichael Training Systems, uh, which was known for their hand in Lance Armstrong's um, Tour de France wins outside of the cheating stuff. They weren't part of that, but uh, were part of the other part of his training. And I thought, you know, I could do this. I could train people. Uh, and then I found when I tried to train people that nobody wanted me to train them. And that was really where um, this willingness superseded all odds and rules in the physical life. Um, it was through willingness that the rules were altered and the odds were changed, right? Because I coached people for free. I coached people for free because I believed that if I could just prove that I knew what I was doing with my coaching, that eventually I would get these athletes that were world-class, the ones I believed that I should be training and helping achieve their goals. And as I coached people for free, um, I made good athletes better. I made better athletes awesome. And I made great athletes greater in that journey. And eventually individuals that were former Olympic medalists um, on their way to the Olympics, training at the, for the Olympics and being a part of the Olympic trials were trusting me uh, with their training programs. And that's when I started to amass athletes from all over the world. And one of those was Brooke Crane, who made it to the Olympics uh, in 2016. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, if you could tell someone who's going through a similar situation uh, that you did, what would you tell them? You don't have to live that way. If somebody was in my situation, I would 100% say it doesn't have to be this way if you don't want it. But in that desire to not want things to be the way they are, there has to be a level of honesty with self. 
There has to be a surrender to the ways that you thought worked but didn't and a willingness to apply the principles and suggestions of those that know how to go from the position that you're in to the position you believe that you should be in or could be in. And so it really comes down to you just realizing, I don't want to live this same way anymore. I can't live this way anymore. I give up. Somebody help me. Somebody show me. If you can do that, you'll find where I'm at. You'll find where many others are at, just like me. And you'll be in a position where you can look in the mirror and say, I love who I see. And thank you so much. And I think it's really important that you are who you are. And I want to thank you for being so real with this situation because it's, it's also important to know that it is real and it does happen to people, but that there is way out. Like you said, there is. And if I could take away one thing from your speech at our school, it's the three words that you said, or the three phrases you said was, I can, I will, and I'm able to. And I think those three phrases can take someone very far, like you said, you, it can. It'll take you further than you ever believed. It's your ability to say, I can, I will, and I'm able when you don't feel like it. And trust me. Every one of us are not going to feel like it many times in our lives, but if you can force yourself to say that and it can become instinct, you will find a way to turn every bad thing into something great. And with that, we will conclude the interview with Mr. Tony Hoffman. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, let's shift it over to the playoffs again, but this time on the NHL side. And let's start with the Eastern Conference final between the Lightning and the Rangers. How about them Rangers? So, like we said, the Rangers, well, we have Rangers up 2-1 going into Game 3 tonight in Tampa Bay. So I think that might help Tampa Bay a little bit. New York has been fire at home. They've only lost one game at home this playoff season. Only one. Let's talk about Igor Shosturkin. What do you love about him? I'm going to say it right now. Igor Shosturkin is the MVP of the Rangers right now. Yes, Mika Zibanejad has been outstanding as well, and so has Adam Fox. But Igor Shosturkin has been the MVP of this team. His stats this playoffs have been 633 shots faced, 589 saved, for a 9 save percentage. That's amazing. I think his goals against average is just over two, maybe closer to two and a half. But without him and back in net, it's it's bad back in New York. The thing I love about the Rangers is they're always out to a hot start, and I think that really helps them. Like the Lightning, they're a very fast team, you know, Ross Colton and others. But the Rangers are also very young. I think their average age is 19. And they get out the gates early in some games. When they don't, it can be bad. But, I mean, let's say the Rangers do move on and go up against the Avalanche, who score plenty of goals each night and can always come back. I mean, the Oilers didn't have many leads, and if they did, they were not for that long. So if we talk about that and then we go to the Lightning side, what do you like from the Lightning? Well, I want to go back before we go to the Lightning. Is If you look at if they do go against Colorado. Colorado, as you said, score a lot, but they shoot the puck a lot as well. And the difference between 
Edmonton and potentially the Rangers is the goalie. Mike Smith was the reason Edmonton lost that series. You can't hold a lead because he can't save the puck. And so with somebody secure back there like Shesterkin, it, it gives a lot of confidence to players. As you said, these young players like Adam Fox, like Capo Caco. So these players, they just it builds confidence, and that's what I think has given New York such a role. Can we talk about Andre Vasilevsky? He's looked shaky at times, but then other times he's looked amazing. Last, or not last night, two nights ago, game three, I think he looked outstanding. And he still has that big play factor. He's one of the best, if not the best, goalie in hockey. But he's not having his best playoffs, and his series goals against average is sitting around 3.72, and a save percentage around 8.80. So if he can get that up, I think Tampa Bay will be in business. All right, let's move over to now the finished Western Conference Finals where the Avalanche took care of big business, did it in four, sent Edmonton packing, and let's talk about the Avalanche. First game, Sterling won. They won 8-6. to six. That was a high-scoring game. It showed reminiscence of the first game of Calgary in Edmonton in that, what, 9-6 thriller, I think it was. So... Edmonton was used to high-scoring games, but what they weren't used to was the skating ability of Colorado all over the place, including Kale McCarr. Talk about Kale McCarr. Kale McCarr had a great Western Conference Finals series. He had nine points, and he had 22 all through the playoffs. So that's about 22 divided by three. That's about eight per series, a little less. It's incredible. He's such a young talent, and... Just watching him skate on the ice as a defenseman, it amazes me. But I will say is his goal in game one or two, one of the home games they played, should not have counted. It was a horrible call by the referees. It was late in the first period. He's skating into the zone, and I believe it was Valeri Nikushkin was off on the right side, and he was off sides by half a step, and they called it a good goal. So... Oilers were robbed there, but I don't think that would have changed the outcome of this series. Well, to talk about the outcome, let's move over to the loser team of the series, Edmonton. What do you think just went wrong with them besides Mike Smith? They don't have enough depth, and it showed. You can't be playing Connor McDavid, Dreisaitl, and Hyman out there for close to 30 minutes a night. So they build that depth this up- upcoming offseason, get a new goaltender, and I think that team can be threatening because, I mean, Connor McDavid and Dreisaitl are, I believe, leading the NHL in postseason points this postseason. And Evander Kane is leading them, is leading the league with goals this postseason with 13. So them missing him in that game four was huge. Let's talk about the penalty minutes. In game two, the Avalanche went on the power play seven times in game three five times. So if you give them 12 opportunities of a man up in just two games, they're going to put it back in you know five or six times at least. And they're lucky they didn't. Colorado was super shaky on power plays this series and easily could have scored seven-plus goals every single game. And so that, that was a problem with goaltending, not enough depth, bad giveaways or careless giveaways, and staying out of the box. Yes, they're a physical team, but there's a point where you have to be smart. 
All right, let's move into the Champions League final with Real Madrid 1 versus Liverpool 1-0 thanks to the goal by young star Vincius Jr. The game was only one nothing, but it, I personally think it was a really, really good game. There was definitely chances by Liverpool. They even hit the post, Sadio Mane, in the first half. But they, they could not figure out goalie Thibaut Courtois. He was outstanding, making some saves at full length, diving. Real Madrid definitely was, I think, the better team in that game if you look at it as a whole. But the bigger problem was actually before the game, it was delayed 36 minutes because fans couldn't get in. They did not have enough security for all the Liverpool fans, and it was pretty crazy. It almost took over the headlines over the game. All right, let's move into our interesting fact with the Cy Young and what that kind of is. So did you know that the record for the most career earnings pitched in Major League Baseball is Cy Young with 7,356? And then today, the Cy Young Award is given to the, the best pitcher who was deemed in the American and National League. That is in Zach Green, Luca DeLosta. Thank you for listening.